From the LA Times Studios, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American celebrity about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm Frank Xiong. And I'm Jen Yamato. This week on episode six of our podcast, Chef and Food Network star Jet Tila joins us. He'll explain the tight connection between Thai food and Hollywood. The little known fact was Star Trek food, The Next Generation, Voyager, all the Klingon food was like durian and, no like, way. and jackfruit. We'll also talk about his family's horticultural banditry and ask Jet for his bad Asian confession. So let's do it. So the show is called Asian Enough. I don't know what you feel when you think about the name, but I feel like a lot of Asian Americans have had trouble kind of feeling like they're enough, whether you visit the home country and they make fun of the way you speak the language. Yeah, like, totally. You know, someone has their own ideas of what being Asian is, and you just like, you don't live up to it. We're kind of like about the idea that everyone's Asian enough. And there's well, no there's also thing, a culinary know? Asian enough as well. I yeah. mean, there's, there's a lot of double standards when it comes to non-Asians cooking Asian versus right. Asians cooking Asian. So yeah, I... I yeah, you're never enough. When yes. you're, you're never American enough. You're never Asian enough. And I'm Thai and Chinese, so there's two cultures I'm not enough. So, you know. Awesome. Perfect. You're awesome. perfect. That was like the intro to our podcast. Thank <laughs> you. There you go. You're, you're really good at that. There you go. Bites. Just steal my sound bites. <laughs> so we have a bit. I guess one of our first questions is, Jet, who are you? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a native Angelino, first-generation American kid from my family. Um, I was lucky enough to come from the first Thai food family in America, right? I think I think if you go back in time, most people knew me for being the kid that dropped their groceries off or bagged their groceries from Bangkok Market. If you, wor- if you worked in a restaurant in Los Angeles from the 70s to the 2000s, you knew of my family's grocery store. But more recently, you might know me from being the floor reporter from Iron Chef America or, you know, judge on Cutthroat Kitchen, Beat Bobby Flay, Guys Grocery Games, about six different shows on Food Network. But at the end of the day, I, I am a cook and I'm a storyteller. And that's it. And and, and some, sometimes a cultural anthropologist. I think th- those are the easiest ways to describe who I am. I'm a kid from L.A., who likes to eat food and is constantly trying to figure out who I am, where did I come from, what am I doing here? You're still trying to figure that out? Oh, totally. Uh, In my mid-40s, I'm still trying to figure out what my place is here, you know? Now I'm trying to raise two kids and be a good husband and father. That was great. That was such an evocative answer to that question. And how relatable. (laughs) We're all trying to figure it out still. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of the reasons uh, we wanted to have you on was just that story of food and in, in, in your family that you told a little bit in your intro. And was it hard to decide to go into food? Why Why did you go into food? Um, mostly because I, I really don't know much else in life, to, to be brutally honest. Um, my grandparents escaped communism, left China to go to Thailand. My parents were born in Thailand met here in the 60s. So, you know, I, I come from three generations of restaurateurs, period. And it was the the craft that that gave my family an opportunity in this country, right? We were poor. Um, and so the, I was raised in the grocery store. 
And then I was raised in the restaurants. And then I was raised in the farms and the fields of the produce company. So I tried to rebel uh, up until I was 20. Then I finally succumbed. And I said, this kind of is the only thing I'm good at in life. So it's it was by no choice. Asian Enough is presented by Little America, now streaming exclusively on Apple TV Plus in the TV app on all iOS devices and TV app-supported devices. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content. So you didn't grow up wanting to go into food then? Uh, I well, I had I was in food, right? And I was trying to run away from food. I I was a security guard for a minute. I sold cell phones for a minute. I installed alarm systems. I mean, those are all the good things that I could talk about. <laughs> I mean, do you know what I mean? I dropped yeah. out of high school. Yeah, you yeah. know, so pretty typical, you know, kid that wasn't a super high achiever for for until I was like twenty years old. Um, pretty typical chef's, chef's genes, you know, I think black sheep rebel, but not really because I wanted to be, I just didn't know. I can't stay in a straight line. I can't live in a box. Why is that the characteristic of a chef? The older I get, the more I come back to, it is a product of trauma. We're all basically either trying to relive a trauma or run away from a trauma. And I think the traumas that I had were having non-existent parents, right? Wanting attention. So acting out to get attention. They're always in the restaurant or the grocery store. hundred percent. And we were stuck there. No days off. Zero, right? They were never home. So when I was at the markets, I wasn't hanging out with my parents or the restaurants. I had no choice. So I think it was a constant cry for attention on my part. But that is a common thread, I think, in a lot of culinarians. But for me, it was very, very kind of linear. It was very like, pay attention to me, right? And I'm just going to do dumb stuff until you do. And then eventually you adopted the language of food. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think I was born with it more than anything. You know what I mean? If it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something, I was a grocery expert by the time I was 15. I was a culinary expert by the time I was 20. You know what I mean? So I knew every skew in our grocery store. So I had concurrent apprenticeships. I had a restaurant apprenticeship, I had a grocery store apprenticeship, and then I had a produce farming apprenticeship. And you mentioned this earlier, but who are some of those restaurateurs who you were— Oh, yeah. Like Mary Sue will tell you, right? Mary Sue and Susan will tell you, I remember—you are that kid? <laughs> when we met on Food Network in the 2000s, like, what the hell are you doing here, Right. Who's Mary Sue? Oh, so yeah, Mary Sue Milligan, Susan Fenniger from Border Grill, from Street, from... Just major L.A. chefs. Just like all the, anyone who cooked in L.A., right? Like Josiah, you know, Citrin, he shopped at our store. His parents shopped at our store. I used to deliver groceries to Sang Yoon. We used to drive delivery orders to Michael's, to Suzanne Tract and Preach at that time at Joe Zoo, but now it's, it's Jar. All these people knew me from when. Why was everyone going to your family's grocery store? We were the only place 
within 15 miles of all these phenomenal restaurants, right? And on a major thoroughfare. We're on Melrose Boulevard. We're off the 101. You know, we were nice and easy to deal with. I think there's a Asian grocery store belief that it's going to smell bad and they're going to be rude to you. (laughs) And my parents were the opposite. So we were there. We were present for the California cuisine movement, for the fusion movement. So uh, we were we became the place. We wanted to make it easy for restaurateurs to get whatever they needed. So it, it just stuck. And obviously, a lot of these names that you that you dropped that we asked you to yeah, drop. Yeah, yeah. I'm not but, even name dropping. Yeah, of these yeah. Names are not Thai names. You None know, they're of not them even are Asian Thai names. names. So they were coming to your family's market, searching for something they couldn't find somewhere else. Hundred percent. I mean, well, you know, it was easy to get it from us. And if you couldn't get it, we will get it for you. Right. I mean, it, it, so. We were kind of like the Hollywoody Asian market. And we're down the street from Paramount Studios. So little known fact was Star Trek food, The Next Generation, Voyager, all the Klingon food was like durian. and No like, way. And jackfruit. <laughs> and do you see what I'm saying? Like we had yeah. all that stuff because we were right down the street. You're so delivering the, to the prop department. <laughs> 100%. Right place, right time, man. You know well, what I so, mean? So the showmakers were like, oh, we need some alien looking food. And like, right. let's go to your store. And oh, what wow. is what is mangosteen? And what is rambutan? <laughs> yeah. These fuzzy looking things. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I really grew up in all, in the middle of all that. Yeah. Um, well, I was reading a history of Thai food in Los oh, Angeles. Actually, Mark Padungpat's book. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah you yeah, you yeah. know Mark's of book. Of course. And I found myself reading about you and your Sorry. dad, actually, and, and your family. <laughs> and it was almost like a, a horticultural Indiana Jones adventure story or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Like, could you tell us a little bit you more about that? The, the Indiana Jones part. Yeah, 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 the the robbing and stealing part. No, the, <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> no, no, no. The 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 smart entrepreneurial person that my father was, like, you know. So there were the Chinese community was well established, right, since late seventeen hundreds, probably, right. And then the Vietnamese were coming over late sixties, seventies. Um, so there were Chinese markets that were established. Chinese community was established, but the Thai community was not. And they needed things like in mass, like lemongrass and kaffir uh, makroot leaves, right. Uh, so my father, being an enterprising man, would like drive to the ag schools in California and may or may not have taken clippings from kaffir trees to plant into rootstock and then plant them in the Central Valley. <laughs> and, you know, the entire jackfruit industry in southern Mexico, Central America was created by my father. No way. Oh, 100%. Are these stories he would tell you? Oh, I lived it. Yeah. There was uh-huh. not... I spent my summers in the Central Valley and my winter breaks in Mexico, in Culiacan and Sinaloa and and Nayarit, like 500 jackfruit plants being transplanted into rootstock. And my job was to water those. And then once they got to plantable, we would drive them down into Central Mexico and and Southern Mexico. I lived all that. Wow. So your family, the reason you kind of call yourself the first family of Thai food is because you guys kind of brought these produce markets to the First grocery store, first restaurants, first produce purveyors. How do you describe, and including how your family's history interweaves with this, but how do you describe the explosion of Thai food in America and in Los Angeles? You know, um, I I think you have to trace it back to Vietnam, right? Most major campaigns were flown out of Thailand, 
right? Because of the Golden Triangle, because our, our relationship. Thailand is, has never been occupied or controlled by a foreign power. It was allies with the U.S. So they gave Thai people visas. So in 1966, the first group of Thai people came in, in mass. My parents were in that group. So there's the beginning. Second, there's always been this romance of, of this, this American romance to Thailand. It's exotic. The people are nice. It's so beautiful. I mean, and there's also the, ne- the, the really not so nice side of that, the sexual tourism and all that. But no matter what, right, there's, there's this halo effect that I think Thailand has on, on Americans. And then when we started the food, oh, look at all these flavors. Look at the flavor range. European food is like herbs and salt and pepper and olive oil and garlic (laughs) and mirepoix. And all of a sudden, I've got hot and sour and salty and sweet. It's so exotic. Yeah, one of the things I remember from the book that I thought was funny was that at first, Thai food was marketed as like a better tasting Chinese Chinese food. food, Yes, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, and and it's because you know you know Cantonese food is a little sweeter and like richer or whatever, and and they wanted brighter flavors. Yeah, but yeah, like what did people know about Thai food, and how much of that did you guys teach them? (laughs) I, I would say pad Thai, chicken satay, tom yum, tom ka gai. It was was Thai food. Then you weave in chow mein because you got to give them somewhere to start. Because again, Americans knew Cantonese style Chinese food for years. This was just like a departure. And then once you get, you know what I mean? It's like you gradually um, acclimate and learn, and then you start to get curious. And 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 Thailand was always has always been really aggressive about tourism, right? Getting people to visit. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, right. Messaging. You were uh, named a Thai culinary ambassador. Yeah, how did that happen? By the way, <laughs> the truth. You guys want the truth, right? Of course. No, yeah. just tell us the Indiana <laughs> no, Jones no, version no, of yeah. every story. Here's the Indiana Jones version of every story, which is the br- the brutal truth, right? You know, the consul general and myself, uh, three consul generals ago, right? Because the post, tra- you know, transitions every few years. You know, we had a lot of Thai chefs that were were starting to to become notable in america we had ricker you've got guys in chicago then there's so there's a lot of mixed messages about thai food what is thai food who speaks for thai food we we sat down in a room and we're like we need a position that that basically allows the government to say this person plants the flag holds the torch for thai food so we need a culinary ambassador Right, we need the guy, and we need to create a, a fun marketing term for it. So I was like, "Dude, give me the ambassadorship. It sounds awesome." You know what I mean? And he said it was a great idea. So you know, we, we have we have a few programs. We have Thai Select, which is a government program that acknowledges Thai restaurants that are that are doing very well, or or, or you know, are good at certain things. We have trade shows around the country, around the world. Can you go speak for Thai food? Because we also wanted someone that was in media, that was recognizable, right? Now, I was the only one at that time doing a lot of television. And so as part of your ambassadorship, you're going around to different Thai restaurants and really out into the field. 100%. And when I'm on television, which is the best way to go anywhere, right? When Alton Brown says, this is, you know, on our new shows, this is a culinary ambassador of Thailand, like that sinks in. By the way, I just have to ask this Alton yeah, Brown of course, aside. Man. Whose idea was it to get matching tattoos? And oh, what yeah. does your tattoo say? I have a tattoo on my right forearm that says never be daunted. So Alton Brown and I did a 
bunch of episodes of a show called Cutthroat Kitchen together. And over those episodes and hundreds and hundreds of hours and those months and years, we became very close friends, like very, very close friends. We were just sitting around one day and he's like, you know, I haven't gotten a tattoo. I get a tattoo every decade, he said. And I'm like, let's get tattooed together. Let's get hammered. Let's do it. He's like, <laughs> hell yeah, let's do it. So, you know, it really is a symbol of our friendship. And it's never be daunted is a Hemingway quote. And the way that came to be was we're sitting around the trailer. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's let's get a matching tattoo. Who's gonna pick what it is? Like, I am not a, I'm not a cerebral scholarly guy like Alton. I'm like, if I win this, whatever, we're gonna get an octopus chef. With eight utensils, one in each arm. Oh, Thank, God you won. Thank God he won. Thank God he won. So, so there. Yeah. You can actually watch the video if you Google Jetty Latin Brown. We actually wanted to put it on social media while we're getting tattooed. Oh, so wow. you can watch we like that 40. That, we huh? live streamed it and it, it exists. It lives in the world now. So there was this moment where like Thai food was cool. And there was this moment where like no one knew anything about it. Yeah. So like, what was it like for that thing that you grew up with to like all of a sudden be cool? Yeah. I'm trying to think back through those years. I try to kind of like articulate what was the tipping point. You know, it, it, it had this phenomenally fast rise to ubiquity. Do you know what I mean? And it had to be between the 80s, probably the 90s. Wow, because Thai Town was founded in 2000. Right. And I would say we were already firmly ubiquitous. Yeah, that was right? just kind of the recognition. Right? right. So I would say between the 80s and 90s, for some reason, Thai food became ubiquitous. By the way, how do you, our ambassador, <laughs> yeah. guest, how um, do you describe the geography of, of Thai town, uh, both literal geography yeah. and cultural geography? For sure, today? that's a great question. The literal geography is six blocks of Hollywood Boulevard. Western edge is <laughs> Western Avenue, and the Eastern would be Normandy. There are more Armenian and Hispanic and non-Thai businesses than there are Thai businesses. The the that was the hub of Thai culture. I would say in the eighties and nineties, and and it, it ceased to be so. But I think that Chancy Martorell from the Thai CDC saw that there was a grant um, that there was up for kind of beautify America. And she wrote that grant with the Thai CDC. And and I think it was just an opportunity. And, you know, opportunity met preparation. And the Thai, Thai CDC took the lead on creating Thai Town. But I think I really helped in making it a thing. And all roads lead back to the LA Times. In 1998 to 2000, I was the test kitchen intern at the Times under Russ Parsons. Oh, wow. What and was that like? It was amazing. I was discovered... Mainstream. My my tipping point personally was, I was teaching cooking classes out of my mom's backyard. Barbara Hansen, who wrote for the Times for thirty years, something like that, twenty thirty years, wrote an article on my cook my little backyard cooking classes pre Food Network pre anything, and that changed my life. Literally, from Wednesday to Thursday, when the when the food section dropped on Thursday, I got hundreds of calls that week, and that prompted me to go to French culinary school, go to Japanese culinary school, and basically created this person today. Why was that? Was it because you realized there was uh, uh, an appetite for the skills that you have? There was a phenomenal need in the market for Thai recipes, for like an ed edutainment recipe 
kind of visual way to learn Thai food. For someone to speak for Thai food in the city and in Los Angeles. And that was right as Food Network was dropping into the world. So it all kind of converged. I wonder, especially when you started becoming such a public face, Mm -hmm. what did authenticity mean to you? Like, what responsibility did you feel towards even that concept? Yeah, because as the culinary ambassador, like, you're you're stamping, like, authenticity and operation, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Right. I don't know. Authenticity can mean a lot. There's a spectrum of authenticity, which is kind of counter to the word authenticity, right? There would be no jitladas if there was no royal Thai 80 years ago. If we didn't put ketchup in pad thai because we didn't have paprika or sriracha, then we wouldn't have created the appetite to get to the point we are now. So authenticity is in the moment and based on the context of the person dining. I don't believe I can, there's this rubber stamp of universal authenticity. And I think people who chase that are are ridiculous. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because am I going to force you to eat something because it's authentic, but you don't perceive it as delicious? I don't think that's fair. That's not That's not my job. If you're eating pad thai noodles now, I can create the appetite for drunken noodles and then further create that appetite for khao soy. I could take you on that journey. We have various modes of wanting different type of authenticity through your evolution of as a diner. Does that make sense? So yeah, that's where I'm yeah. at on authenticity. Yeah, no, Mark talked a little bit about that oh, um, good. in his book. People learning about Thai food became, you know, their way to learn about Thai culture. 100%. You know? and so one side effect of that is that people knowing Thai food <laughs> kind of gave them the impression that they knew something about Thai people. You know, right, and and so food in a very like fundamental way has like shaped perceptions of Agreed. like Asian Americans, yeah, know? and just the way that people talk about food, how it focuses on authenticity, how it focuses on culture, and I'm just wondering if that's ever like affected you or, or affected the way people respond to you, or yeah, yeah, you know, like look, uh, I'm not Thai enough for Thai people. I mean, <laughs> let's go back to that, right? Because when I'm in Thailand. Thai people are like, this is the guy who speaks for Thai food? He can't read Thai. You know what I mean? He's Chinese, right? What the hell is this guy speaking for? But they don't understand the big picture, right? Every time somebody eats my food or watches me on TV and there's a positive takeaway, and then there's this automatic halo effect for Thailand, Thai-ness, tie anything beyond that if we go broader i've seen almost every state in this in this amazing country that we live in there's a lot of times that people are like wow you don't have an accent where were you born i cannot imagine how many times you might have been asked that. 100 but you know what i don't take offense i've i look at it as i've taken someone who's never been exposed to my culture and given them an amazing experience and now everyone else they see that looks like me. They don't know the difference between Thai, Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, whatever. But now they're they're like, oh, they're not so foreign after all. They're not so whatever after all. I want to know more about this guy. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. So in some moments I speak for Thai people. In some moments I speak for Asians. I'm a representative of anyone who looks like me. And I take that really seriously. And, and if I can create a positive experience through media, through food, through whatever, I've done my job. 
Asian Enough is presented by Little America, the acclaimed comedy series now streaming exclusively on Apple TV+, for your Emmy Awards consideration. Inspired by the true stories featured in Epic Magazine, Little America goes beyond the headlines and looks at the funny, romantic, heartfelt, inspiring, and surprising stories of immigrants in America, and they're more relevant now than ever. Episodes include The Cowboy, where a Nigerian student finds a sense of connection through Oklahoma's cowboy culture, and The Jaguar, where an undocumented high school student's life is changed by an urban squash coach. Apple TV Plus is available on the Apple TV app on iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, iPod Touch, Mac, select Samsung and LG smart TVs, Amazon Fire TV and Roku devices, as well as at tv.apple.com for $4.99 per month with a seven-day free trial. Customers who purchase a new iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Mac, or iPod Touch can enjoy one year of Apple TV Plus for free. Get Apple TV Plus and stream all of Little America today. There's enough uncertainty to go around these days, especially if you own a business. Luckily, NetSuite reduces it by giving you visibility and control. With so many critical decisions to make, you need the right numbers and you need them right now. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you get financials, cash flow, payroll, inventory, and more, all in one place. So you have clear visibility and total control of your business. NetSuite customers have the flexibility to work from anywhere with immediate clarity on critical information right at their fingertips. No more guessing, no more waiting. Make smarter decisions with confidence because you've got crystal clear visibility into your numbers. It's time to join over 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to stay in control. Don't wait to get your free guide and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com enough. That's netsuite.com enough. NetSuite. Business grows here. Let me shift a little bit to your non-food life. Mm -hmm. What, especially, I'm so curious, (laughs) especially growing up in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. uh, in the time that you did, what were the bands, the the music, <laughs> the, the movies that shaped you. What decade were you guys born in? I'm just curious. 88 for me. 80s. 80s. Oh, my God. What? Uh, <laughs> I was born in the early 80s. Got it. Okay. I was. <laughs> I got it. Early 80s, late 80s, mid 80s. You guys are both like within three or four years of each other. Um, the music at my time. So my, my aunt is Mexican. Let, let's be clear. The Tillicamancools, my family, and the Chihuahuas got their green cards because my uncle married um, Dora Lucero, a Mexican-American woman. We had a huge mixed family in Monterey Park in Alhambra. I remember like listening to like Banda and Norteño and like, like you know, a lot of Mexican music as a kid, like, like a lot of my uncles, you know, that were Mexican. And then my dad would listen to like Thai country music, which is the worst music. Oh my God. That sounds amazing. It's horrible. You might like like? it. I bet hipsters would embrace it and and love it. Excuse you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, And then myself, you know, coming from kind of like the. uh, the inner city, you know, I liked, I liked a lot of, I liked, I liked hip hop, but you know, as I in in my formidable years, in my super rebel years, I definitely was more metal. You know, rebel I mean? years. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I mean, Asian kid dropping out of high school. Your parents put you through 
private school for like 10 years for no, you to not finish. It's a miracle they still talk to. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of metal are we talking? Oh, you know what? I was like Megadeth Metallica. Ah. I was Ride the Lightning. You know what I mean? For whom the bell told our master puppets. You know what I mean? So I was definitely like glammy metal. <laughs> and then it, then it evolved into hairband music. So I love Cinderella and Poison. Oh, and yes. Tesla and... Tesla used to mean something way different in the 90s. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, Where did you grow up? Started in Alhambra, then spent a lot of years in East Hollywood by the Bangkok market. I, I spent a few years three blocks from the park where MS-13 started. Oh, so okay. So Mara Salvatrucha is the biggest Salvadoran gang like in the world. And so the guys that were punking me as kids were Salvadorians. Right, I made a lot of Salvadorian friends, and then we moved west. And then culture shock. Our first restaurant was like Pico and Overland on the west side, where the used to West wow. Side Pavilion used to be. That's a very different part of town. It was a horrible yeah. transition, <laughs> right? Like I was this kind of ghettoish in an Asian way, and they called <laughs> me ghettoish in a Hispanic way because I grew up so much of my life with my Hispanic family and friends. Uh, and then now, I uh, uh, about a decade ago, uh, then I bought I bought a house in mid cities, but I moved to Vegas for a few years. But I kept my place in mid cities, and now we're back. I'm back in Silver Lake. My fa- my parents landed in America in 1966, lived in Silver Lake, and I'm back in Silver Lake hmm. in 2020. A very different Silver Lake. Uh, <laughs> oh man, it's amazing how different. Is that a good context or bad? Tell me about your thoughts. I I mean I'm not a native <laughs> Angelina, so. I don't think I have a strong It's so political, wiggling. No, nothing it's is ever all the way you know? good or bad. You know? Oh, man, look you at know? you guys. You guys should be running for office. <laughs> I thought you were journalists. That this were is what the staunch. journalistic conclusions have led us. But look, you know, journalistically, I truly need to know, like, what are your favorite foods? Um, What's, like, your comfort food, go-to comfort food? Yeah, I think your your brain food maps are pretty locked down by 10 years old. Do you know what I mean? Like— Honestly, so Thai food and Mexican food. If I don't eat those two foods at least once every two weeks, I get really grumpy. I eat at Rune Pear like once every other week. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like the restaurants you grew up at because you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I ate at Ocean uh, in, in, in in Chinatown, right? I grew up right close to oh, that. Oh, you're an right? Ocean Seafood I'm an Ocean Seafood guy. dim sum oh, guy, okay. yeah. right? I, I, I like comfort, so I always go back. But when I eat bougie, I love like Kispaka. I eat a jar once every month or two, but I'm not like you know I don't I don't branch out. There's not enough time to take chances. <laughs> well, there's a big question. Uh, oh yeah, um, we, we look. We were reading your bio. It's serious. And we're <laughs> utterly delighted to uh, find these world records that you. Oh hold. my the, god! The world's largest stir fry. That's right. The world's largest seafood stew. The world's largest fruit salad. The yeah. world's largest California roll. I have so many questions. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to make the whole interview. Thank God. About I thought this, this was going to go like dark and uh, weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, talk no. to me. Well, how did you, it seems like you kind of went after these, you know, these trophies essentially. You know, <laughs> what was that about? In the early 2000s, I left my family's business and I worked for a company called Bon Appetit Management. And if, if you know food service, you, you know the company, right? Um, we did the first. Cafes at Google, Yahoo, Cisco. We basically dominated in tech and high-end private schools. So uh, I started cooking high-volume corporate dining, right? And uh, we were acquired by Compass Group, which is the largest food service 
provider on earth now. It was a coming out thing. Like first year that Bon Appetit was part of Compass Group and my leadership was like, let's do something big. And I'm like, literally big. All right. <laughs> I'm like, literally, right? Like you want to go crazy. Yeah, and I'm like, okay. do you trust me? And they're like, I trust you. Like I broke the Guinness world record for the world's largest stir fry. So that's how the first world record started. It actually started, it went back though. The idea came from Thai New Year. It was probably like, geez, man, I got to think of it. Like maybe either the year 2001 or 2002 for the Thai New Year for the Songkran Festival here in Los Angeles. Um, the Thai government wanted me to do something big. So I'm like, I'm going to do the world's largest pad thai. Oh, so I that, think I remember this. Do you remember that? This? Oh. Probably 2001, 2002. Oh, no, okay. I'll it was go. right after Thai, the formation of Thai Town. Mm -hmm. Right, it was one of the first few New Year's celebrations when we had a Thai town. I think I read about this in our archives. Oh, cool! Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> it's in there. I I did a 500 pound pad Thai. I had a walk fabricated, like an eight foot walk fabricated. Right, I designed it, had the fabricator make it. I made this pad Thai. I submitted it for a world record. I'm like, why not? You know, what I, mean? I don't. I can't think of anyone making a world like a pad pad Thai. So I submitted it to Guinness. I got a letter back going. Sorry, technically a, a pad thai is a stir fry. Uh, oh, what? Wow. <laughs> exactly. Oh that was gosh. my thing. I was like, screw you guys. And then what's the biggest stir fry? So the Guinness World of Book Records thinks they, they can categorize pad thai as a stir fry. How huh? dare they? Who are they? Uh, I'm kind of outraged. So. I like that. <laughs> I'm a little outraged by that. I'm picturing 5,000 pounds yeah. of deliciousness. Oh, man. Yeah, so I broke the record twice. I broke the record at like 890 pounds. And then someone broke my record. And about two years later, I, I rebroke that. Wow. <laughs> you have to defend your crown. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. Where's um, that walk right now? Oh, the walk. One year we did stir fry. And the other year we made seafood stew with it. We repurposed <laughs> it like good Asian people. <laughs> so I have a partnership with the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And that's who I did it with. So... So yeah, you have corporate. you have the big walk, you know. You might as well go uh, after the other walk based. I already spent <laughs> the money engineering this thing. I already drove it from Boston to oh, Amherst. Oh my gosh! Let's break another record before we retire. Wait, so when you made the stir fry, how did you distinguish it from a pad thai? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, because because I knew that noodles in a walker. Imagine cooking like five thousand pounds of noodles. It's it's impossible. But um, it's easy to make meat and vegetable stir fry. <laughs> get Cucumon involved. Get you know what I mean. I, yeah, I, I got yeah. all the sponsors. <laughs> I lined up all the sponsors. I got the funding, and so that's why we did a stir fry. You know what I mean? I basically we put it out to our partnerships. Uh, I asked. I had UMass talk to whoever their their supply chain people were, and it was just a big thing to welcome students back. And you know, it's just bragging rights. Big big corp likes that stuff. But I like that though. You're making big statements. Agreed, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I want to do stuff that no one's ever done in, in, in the history of Asian people. You know what I mean? I want to be the first first culinary ambassador, first this, first that, first judo on TV. It's not even for vanity, man. I just I want to be able to die and be like, I did some cool s stuff. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah. One thing you mentioned earlier was that you're still sort of wrestling or, or negotiating with your sense of identity. For sure. How so? Like, how would you describe what your current work is in relation to that feeling? I mean, we've gone off the Asian thing. Is it from an Asian standpoint, like what my identity is? Because I married a non-Asian woman yeah. and I have half Asian kids. I don't have a lot of issues with my identity. I think it's pointed out to me more when I'm not in this country. Does that make sense? In this country, I'm an authority on Asian cuisine and culture 
and and I'm respected for that. When I'm in not in my countries, that's when they're like, "You're not Chinese enough, and you're mm. not Thai enough." So mm. my my identity is very secure, and I'm I'm very happy with it here. But I feel a lot more pressure when I'm not here. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I definitely feel that. Like going back to. Like here, I'm I'm very Asian, you know. Right. And then and then when I go to Taiwan, everyone's like laughing at me, my my Chinese, you know, like I'm a talking dog. Or you something. have an accent. Yeah. <laughs> what? Why do you speak like a kindergartner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How? Where are you from? I'm just curious. I'm from the Bay Area. Okay, but culturally, we're, culturally what? Japanese. Japanese, but right. fourth generation. Okay, so, so four. Pretty removed. Yeah. From, yeah. I don't know if it's the same kind of feeling, but I I distinctly remember the feeling of being in Japan, visiting Japan. Mm-hmm. In a sea of people who look like me for the first time in my life and feeling like they can all tell. You're right. I'm not one of them. We're not, we are, we are more not Asian enough. We are less Asian when we're in Asia. And we're more Asian when we're in America. All of yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of us Asian Americans, no matter what generation you are. Yeah. No, it's it's a it's a mind fuck. Yeah. It it messes with your head. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> so I always feel Asian enough here. <laughs> when I'm at home. Everybody is Asian enough. Everybody yeah, yeah. Well, so I had a question. Maybe you can answer it. What is with Hollywood specifically and Thai food? Why Hollywood, right? But not even just geographically, but Hollywood types, Hollywood rock and oh, rollers also. Yeah. Along Sunset. It's, it seems like a thing. Yeah. You know, I got to think about that. I think that, again, it's probably geography. There's got to be a correlation between Jumbo's Clown Room and Thai Town. Sorry. <laughs> some of you will really understand that that line, and some of you will not. I don't understand. Yeah, don't good for you. you. I you're understand a good, completely. You're a good Asian. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, so there's this cool little topless place in Hollywood, and Courtney Love got her start there and frequented by a lot of rock and rollers over the, their years, and it's in Thai Town. Like, literally in Titan. Well, I was also reading your dad, uh, like, the <laughs> restaurant was next to 20th Century Fox, right? Yeah. And he, like, offered free food 100%. or something like that? 100%. So, when my family opened the restaurant, it was in Pico and Overland. It was six blocks away from 20th Century Fox. The way they promoted the business, because it was going downhill quickly, because no one knew what Thai food was at that time, was he would literally, like, have free food days. I got to see, this is my generation, like Lee Majors from The Fall Guy and like Heart to Heart, Bob, like all, you know, I saw a lot of celebrities. So yeah, maybe maybe Royal Thai and the Tila family can claim the intersection between Hollywood and uh, Thai food. You know, I'm really I'm really proud of like, youngsters like Chris Yumbrung Room, you know, from uh, Night Market, coming from Tale Sai, which is an OG old, you know, Thai restaurant and, uh, and what he's done and really being in that whole Hollywood community. And he's the next gen. I'm the old gen. He's the next gen. And I'm excited to see what's going to come after that. It's that time in our show where we ask our guests for their bad Asian confession, which is a time when you were made to feel like a bad Asian. But again, we are here to unpack the shame, you guys. Give me an example. I want to hear oh, one from both of you guys. Give me uh, an <laughs> That instance. would be fair. You yeah. were bad That's Asian. Uh, for me, like, I when I go to dim sum, I don't order chicken feet. And it's because <laughs> I have nothing to prove, okay? Like, I've You eaten, don't like the taste? You know, I, I the taste is, is is fine, you know? The the delivery method of, of sucking the gelatinous off of the bone, you know? Like, 
I, I prefer a dumpling. You know, wow. put that put that chicken foot in a dumpling. You know, I'll, I'll eat it. You know, but I don't <laughs> like I don't wake up on my like you know weekend and my brunch and I'm like I'm gonna go suck on some chicken bones. Damn, because so that's my favorite thing, bro. Oh, <laughs> you like oh, chicken? Oh, I feet. love oh, all okay. the the bad bits. so you think i'm a bad asian i'm like i'm judging you a little bit for the first time this conversation i'm actually judging you a little bit now oh, yeah. no but that's a good i good and how are you a bad asian mine now i'm afraid i'm gonna incur <laughs> somebody's wrath okay so you know how many asians take their shoes off oh yeah totally at the door when they go home well I never quite adopted that. Wow. So you wear shoes in your house? I do. Major Asian faux pas. I know. I know. <laughs> wow. I know it. I'm sorry. Look, I vacuum a lot. Yeah. I clean the floors a lot. It's fine. But, but you wouldn't have to if you just took your shoes off. Okay, you raise a good point. <laughs> but, but, but the truth is, you yeah. know, many Asians have worn a shoe or two in the house. Amen. You know, and, and like, I'm like... My parents, the way they'd have it is, is I put on slippers, you know. I'm not going to wear house slippers. You know, oh. I take off shoes, put on another pair of shoes. Like, Which so, I do Wait, like so do you that. have house slippers? I just go barefoot. But I do like the concept of house slippers because, do you remember Mr. Rogers' neighborhood? 100% he changed his shoes, right? He not only would change his shoes when he walked in the door of his home set, he would take <laughs> his outside jacket, hang it up on the <laughs> coat rack, and then put on... A lovely, warm, Sweater. soft cardigan. Yeah. Then sit down and methodically take off his shoes and place on slippers. So, wow. you know, I get it's a whole thing. It is a I thing. I get it. Yeah. I don't judge you both. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> it doesn't oh. sound like it. It sounds pretty judgy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chicken right, feet, well, I now, judge. Okay, it's your, it's your turn now. I got to think about that. How am I a bad Asian? Um, um, I ditched Sunday school. I refused. But, I, like, I ditched every school. So there's one bad Asian mark. Like, you know what I mean? And the, the reason why I don't read and write Thai is I didn't go to Sunday school. And my parents, to this day, like, are, are still angry that <laughs> I dropped out of high school and I dropped out of Sunday school. Yeah, I was like that with Chinese school, too. So you didn't do your Chinese school? No, I did it. You know, did you read, I just, do you like, read and write? A little bit. See? Like, a third grade. Ultimately, my parents were right because I really wish that I had, like, studied much harder during that time period, you know? Yeah, you're right, man. Like, I do regret that, but, man, I had so much fun learning, <laughs> learning life while not like, being at Sunday school. Chinese school is at 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. That's, like, the best cartoon hour on the uh, weekend show, so. Hey, listener. Do you have a bad Asian confession you'd like to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. We might even play it on the show. And that is it for Episode 6 of Asian Enough. Thank you to Jet Tila for joining us, and thank you for listening. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato, and by Frank Shang. Our senior producer is Rena Palta. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of Lina Anwar. And come back here next Tuesday for our conversation with the civil rights lawyer Rabia Chowdhury of Serial Fame. My family was horrified because in Pakistan, lawyers are like the bottom of the barrel. It's like the worst profession. They were devastated. If you like Asian Enough, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Jeff Berkshire, Reed Johnson, Shelby Grad, and Clint Shaw. And remember, support your local Asian grocery store. Do not believe the myths. It's going to smell bad and they're going to be rude to you. <laughs>